The determination itself of genocide is so important because it acknowledges the gravity of the crimes committed against the Rohingya and affirms the dignity of the Rohingya wherever they may be in the world at this time. Hello and welcome to the USERF Spotlight podcast, a weekly podcast series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each week, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Now here is the host of our show, USERF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, to lead today's discussion. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. Today, we're going to discuss the recent announcement by Secretary of State Antony Blinken of a determination of genocide and crimes against humanity for the actions perpetrated by the Burmese military, known as the Tatmada, against the predominantly Muslim Rohingya community in Burma. Yusuf has actively reported on conditions for faith communities in Burma for years, where Yusuf recommended that the State Department designate Burma a country of particular concern, or CPC, for engaging in systematic, ongoing, and egregious violations of religious freedom, particularly against Rohingya Muslims. As we've already noted in past spotlight episodes, the situation only deteriorated further with the February 1st, 2021 coup by the Tatmadaw. The coup increased concern regarding ongoing violence against Rohingya and other religious minority communities, but also added new urgency in the international community to pursue efforts of justice and accountability for the violations committed against the Rohingya inside and outside the country, including those internally displaced as well as other ethnic and religious communities targeted. Throughout this period, USERF has consistently recommended the US government make a legal determination as to whether the actions perpetrated against the Rohingya constituted genocide and crimes against humanity. And we're happy to say that time has come. We're fortunate today to have with us USERF Commissioner Anarima Bargava to go deeper on these issues. She was part of a USERF delegation to Burma most recently in 2019 before the pandemic and visited Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh where hundreds of thousands of Rohingya people live to this day in refugee camps without knowing when and if they may be able to return to their homeland. Welcome back to USERF Spotlight, Commissioner Bargava. Thank you so much, Dwight. It's a pleasure to be here and in particular to be able to talk about this determination that was made by the Secretary of State about the genocide of the Rohingya. Indeed. And, you know, for the benefit of our audience, it'd be great if you could provide a brief background uh, of the genocide and crimes against humanity committed against the Rohingya and the persecution and discrimination that led to these uh, mass atrocity crimes. Sure. As you mentioned, Dwight, the Rohingya are a predominantly Muslim ethnic community who have lived mostly in Rakhine State in the northwestern part of Burma for centuries. They have peacefully coexisted with their neighbors for much of this period, including Buddhists who constitute a majority uh, of, of the Burmese population. Following a 1962 coup that was led by General Ne Win, Burma's military government maintained power in part through a divide and conquer strategy that pitted Buddhists, Christians, and Muslims against each other, uh, and in, in Rakhine State, ethnic Rakhine against their Rohingya neighbors. And then in 1982, the government passed a law challenging the citizenship of the Rohingya, 
basically suggesting that they have to prove that they belong. And in trying to cast them out, allowed violence, discrimination, and human rights abuses to, to occur against a Rohingya with, with impunity. The conditions for Rohingya Muslims over this long period did not really improve. Um, we were hoping that would happen after the 2010 general elections that began a time of democratically elected leadership. But instead, during this time, the government legislated new measures, such as the four race and religious, religion laws that targeted Muslims, Christians, and other religious minorities. And during that time, some government and Buddhist leaders in this democratically elected moment used Facebook and other online social media platforms to spread hatred and rumors against the Rohingya and other religious communities, which incited and legitimized both discrimination and violence. There were several attacks on the Rohingya and um, perhaps the, the most widespread and brutal was on August 27, 2017, when the Tatmadaw, the Burmese military launched yet another widespread and brutal attack on the Rohingya, which the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in Myanmar um, documented and documented the instances of the Burmese military involved in indiscriminate killings of civilians, mass rape, disappearances, arbitrary arrest, looting, and the burning of thousands of homes. It resulted in thousands of Rohingya dead, hundreds of thousands internally displaced, and millions who fled across the region, including to Bangladesh. You know, so this context that you provided uh, leads to my next question and, and how religious freedom uh, conditions changed since the coup. As you're well aware, uh, members of the political opposition group, the National League for Democracy and others were quick to pull together uh, to form an opposition government to the Tatmadaw, uh, labeling it the National Unity Government, uh, also known as the NUG. If you could tell our audience, what is the NUG's position uh, thus far related to advancing protections for religious communities and, and what can we expect from them going forward? Thank you, Dwight. I think before I, I speak to the NUG, I just wanna give a sense of, of what has continued to occur since the coup on February 1st, 2021. Uh, religious freedom conditions have deteriorated significantly. And this is a case not only for the Rohingya who remain in the country, uh, including in, in, in camps, but for all minority ethnic and religious communities. Um, USERF has been actively monitoring reports flowing out from different communities, including from regi regions within Burma, where there is significant diversity, um, both by ethnicity and by religion, such as the Kachin, Karen, and Chin. Uh, and the, the coup has led thousands, uh, even more, um, so we already had hundreds of thousands who were internally displaced, but even more have been internally displaced uh, and, um, and they're confined to camps and remain there now. And the conditions in the camps are ones that um, are hard to, to try and even imagine at this point. Some Christian and political leaders have likened the violence that has been directed against protesters and faith leaders as to that um, that were perpetrated against the Rohingya for decades. And so it's important that we heed the warning signs of genocidal acts by perpetrators the, the very same people who have been uh, the Tatmadaw who have been now uh, designated as committing, have, having committed genocide are the ones who are in power. And, um, and, and it's a precedent um, that they are trying to, a, a toolkit that they're using to maintain their power is, is the kind of violence and discrimination against so many uh, religious communities within Burma. Rohingya and other Muslims can continue to bear the brunt 
um, before the coup, the established consensus among Southeast Asian nations um, was that authorities in Burma alongside partners would work towards a solution in which the Rohingya would be able to return to Rakhine state. Um, that is just something that no one expects can happen after this coup. Um, certainly they cannot return to a place in which uh, those who perpetrated a genocide against them are still in power. And so this, this notion that they would be able to come home um, is, is, is really you know, a farce or something that is, that is unimaginable at this point um, for, for so many. Um, the the Tatmadaw have only escalated the rhetoric and attacks on, on Rohingya communities within the country. So let me now turn to the NUG, which is the leading political opposition force to the Tatmadaw. Um, it is comprised primarily of members of the National League for Democracy, the political party led by uh, Anton Song Suu Kyi. The NUG has made uh, significant strides to unite the disparate factions of the country. And the NUG has attempted with some success to pull the different ethnic armed groups together in at least symbolic unity against the common enemy of the Tatmada. Um, they have also appeared to have listened to the demands of some of the ethnic communities and, is, and the NUG is now calling for a new constitution that embraces federalism as a solution to the ethnic and religious conflicts that have plagued Burma since independence. The Tapada has long driven uh, the country's centralization um, to the effect of prioritizing the concerns and needs of the majority Buddhist groups. The NUG has also made previously unthinkable strides to amend past abuses against the Rohingya. In June 2021, it released a statement in which it pledged to look at past citizenship laws and restore Rohingya's citizenship. And, and in that way, I mean, again, it's not clear that the Rohingya ever had their citizenship taken away. That has certainly been the Tatmada position, but not the position of the Rohingya and so many others who have lived and lived in, in Burma for decades. But the, but the NUG stopped short of recognizing atrocities or genocide committed against the Rohingya community. On February 1st, 2022, the NUG released a statement that it withdrew all of its preliminary objections and accepted the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice in the Gambia versus Myanmar, a case I will talk about in a moment. Yeah, no, and that's a good segue, actually, because uh, certainly we've seen some real efforts and progress on international uh, uh, legal uh, efforts, several. And that's kind of leads to my next question uh, with this background. Clearly, uh, you know, we've seen uh, the determination made now formally, uh, and we, 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 want, we want to see what, what are some of the next steps, and could you provide us with a sense of those efforts currently underway in the international legal uh, arena uh, to uh, hold the top medal accountable? Sure. So um, there are a couple of different um, ongoing legal processes. First, there's an ongoing legal seat, suit at the International Court of Justice, or ICJ. Um, in November of 2019, the Gambia, on behalf of the Organization of Islamic Co Cooperation, initiated a case against Burma claiming the country had violated the Genocide Convention in its 2017 violence and brutality uh, against the Rohingya. The Gambia has asked the court uh, to declare Burma responsible for, for violations of the Genocide Convention, to order the cessation of such violations, and to order reparations and restitution for the Rohingya victims of the genocide. The Gambia also requested provisional measures to require Burma to immediately take certain actions to protect the Rohingya 
including preventing all genocidal acts and preserving evidence of such acts, which were unanimously granted in, 20, in January of 2020. In October of 2020, the Gambia filed its full case on the merits. Shortly before the coup in 2021, Burma filed preliminary objections to the court's jurisdiction, which put a pause on the proceedings on the merits of the case. As noted before, the NUG has now withdrawn those preliminary injections, but of course is not uh, you know, technically in, 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 the, in the driver's seat in terms of how the, the country uh, is treating the, the case at this moment. The case has continued since the military coup and the Gambia responded to these objections that were made uh, in January, 2021, in April of 2021. Uh, and, um, and so there's a question of who represents Burma in front of the ICJ. The military junta in Burma appointed a panel of senior officials to represent the delegation before the court, while members of the NUG also expressed their intention to represent Burma in the proceedings. In February of 2022, the NUG announced it had, had advised the ICJ that Burma accepts the jurisdiction of the court and withdraws all preliminary objections in the case, as we mentioned before. The military junta ultimately appeared before the court at the end of February, 2022. The military raised its preliminary objections, including that the ICG, ICJ lacks jurisdiction because the applicant is uh, the OIC and not Gambia, and only states may be parties before the court. Now, the court is deliberating and will make a public determination on the preliminary objections soon. There is also an ongoing investigation at the International Criminal Court into the military's action in Rakhine State. The ICC's investigation is focused on individual criminal responsibility compared to ICJ, ICJ's case, which is focused on the state's responsibility. The ICC was authorized to open this investigation in November of 2019, but its jurisdiction is limited to certain crimes against humanity, notably persecution and the forced deportation in 2017 of Rohingya into Bangladesh, which is an ICC member state. The ICC has jurisdiction because a crime of deportation was completed in an ICC member state. Notably, Burma is not a party to the Rome Statute. At the end of February, ICC prosecutor Karim Khan visited Bangladesh to meet with Rohingya refugees for the first time. During the trip, he reaffirmed the court's commitment to the investigation, including by announcing that he was allocating additional resources to the investigative team and seeking to accelerate the collection and analysis of evidence. Hopefully, we will see progress in this case soon. And lastly, also in November 2019, Rohingya human rights organizations filed a criminal suit in Argentina under the principle of universal jurisdiction. Universal jurisdiction allows the prosecution of crimes that are so grave that we all have an interest in accountability, even when there is not another jurisdictional hook. Six Rohingya survivors of sexual and gender-based violence have given testimony remotely from the refugee camps in, in, in Cox's Bazar, Bangladesh, representing the first time that Rohingya survivors testified regarding the Tatmadaw's atrocities in a court of law. An Argentine judge initially dismissed this case due to concerns that overlap with the ICC investigation. However, an appeals court said that the investigation can go ahead given the ICC's limited jurisdiction, which is a significant legal step forward. The case is now the first universal jurisdiction case related to the Rohingya genocide in the world.
It is also worth noting that in December 2021, a group of Rohingya refugees filed a class action suit, a lawsuit against Facebook in the United States for allowing content, content that promoted violence against the Rohingyas, which is another case that we are watching closely. Thank you so much for that. Uh you know, deep background on some of these uh, efforts, which we hope will will keep moving. And we and obviously we want to see progress here. Um, my final question really is, what can the U.S. government do uh, to support uh, these accountability uh, accountability efforts? And and what else can the U.S. government do both independently uh, and in coordination with its international partners around the world now that the termination uh, has been made? Sure. So I, I want to go back for a moment and just talk about um, Secretary Blinken's announcement uh, in his speech for um, for the need for truth and accountability in the wake of the genocide. Um, he he noted a few things. He noted that there are uh, that there are these ongoing legal cases that we just spoke about that represent an unprecedented use of the international justice system to hold the Burmese government and government officials accountable for the atrocities committed against the Rohingya. Um, he also um, then spoke about the, the responsibility and the accountability of, um, of the international community and certainly the United States uh, role in that. And, um, and so I think there's a couple of things that, you know, we certainly wanted to, to, to talk about, um, which is uh, the determination itself of genocide is so important because it acknowledges the gravity of the crimes committed against the Rohingya and affirms the dignity and the human rights of the Rohingya, wherever they may be in the world at this time. The determination, though, is just a step and must now be followed by continued efforts to promote justice and accountability for these crimes. So Secretary Blinken also noted in his announcement some of the ways that the U.S. government has supported accountability in the Burma context. Uh, the U.S. government has supported the U.N. investigative um, mechanisms to collect preserve and analyze evidence of the most serious international crimes in Burma. He noted that the support has included both information gathering and resources and announced an additional contribution of $1 million to the current investigative mechanisms. These bodies are incredibly important in preserving evidence that can contribute to accountability cases. The current mechanisms have already collected over 1.5 million items of evidence and information, including witness testimony testimonies, documents, messages, photos, videos, geospatial imagery, and social media pages. He also noted that the US government has shared information with the Gambia in connection with the ICGA case. Following the genocide determination, simply put, a first step would be to continue to put sanctions on the Tatmadaw and to isolate sources of revenue. The US government has already sanctioned the leadership in many parts of the Tatmadaw, None of which, however, have cited, uh, the, none of those sanctions, however, have cited religious freedom violations. The genocide determination adds a new demand for targeting more specifically the engines that fuel the genocide and working with our partners in the region and the world towards this effect. The US must also reach out and coordinate with international accountability mechanisms by contributing resources and information to the ongoing cases at the ICJ and the ICC wherever necessary. And finally, the US government should continue to press the NUG and those preparing for a post-coup democratic Burma to embrace a sense of belonging for all. The Rohingya are just one part of the mosaic of identities uh, and communities that make up Burma. 
communities that need recognition and justice for crimes the authorities have committed in the past and for the atrocities that continue to be per perpetrated today. The Rohingya also need to be fully included in the process of building and returning to a democratic Burma. Well, we'll have to leave it right here, but but let me uh, thank uh, Commissioner Anarima Bargava for sharing her insights and expertise today. We certainly hope that this new determination will lead uh, towards justice and accountability for so many Rohingya that have suffered uh, tremendously at the hands of the Burmese military. You can find uh, USERF's latest reporting and findings on Burma and our recommendations for U.S. policy on our website. And as always, thanks for tuning in today, and we'll see you next time on USERF Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.